Okay, I've hit record. Yes. Okay, I'll give it 10 seconds. Hello, welcome to The Affairs Code. My name is Code Advance, your host as always. Our email is theaffairscode.gmail.com or blog, theaffairscode.blogspot.com. Coming to you today with the second half of our uh, COVID lockdown Guilty Pleasure album special. Um, and where we're going to just do a couple more of these uh, records uh, and uh, maybe have a little bit of other musical type of discussion or who, who knows how things will go within the next uh, hour, 45 minutes or so. Um, and who do I have on the other end of the tin cannon string uh, with well, me to we discuss have Isaac, this? the uh, Affairs Current Music Correspondent, coming back for uh, another list as we uh, try and avoid becoming the post-millennial guys who work at the store in high fidelity that this is uncomfortably close to becoming. Mm, indeed, indeed. I also just actually that made me think of, you know, today we had um, both uh, two, you know, momentous occasions in, in uh, independent music. Um, for one thing, we were graced with a, a holy uh, 10 out of 10 uh, review from Pitchfork uh, for the new Fiona Apple a record uh, which I, I'm, you know, going to withhold judgment on because I haven't really listened to all of it so far. But then the other thing, just because you mentioned High Fidelity, is the fact that the uh, Dogleg uh, reviews, uh, released a, uh, a music video for a song off of their latest album, and it's a Clerks homage. Um, so I don't know if that's where we're, we're regressing to in the current uh, environment. Everyone's just going to become like a 90s style slacker by the end of I mean, of this. honestly, that sounds like one of the less bad timelines. I'm not I'm not really panicking too much over that. I will say my only sustained piece of commentary, having not uh, listened to the, the Fiona Apple album enough, is I feel like this could, like, buy pretty, f like, the first time that Pitchfork's actually awarded a 10 to an artist's career summit album. And, like, I respect that. I understand mm. some people feel that way about Twisted Fantasy. I I think it's very good. I, I don't think it's, like, secretly mediocre. But I'll just say I don't think Twisted Fantasy's a 10. Like, that, I don't know. That, 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 it's, it's just mm. kind of bloated. I, I, you know, I like it. it uh, I mean, look, I... I I get if it's people's favorite Kanye album, but for me, I, I have trouble seeing it as his most, like, critic-worthy album. Mm. I mean, I personally, in terms of my favorite Kanye album, like, it, it might be Twisted Fantasy just in terms of the beat work, but I can definitely agree with you that I don't think it's, like, a 10 out of 10 experience. It is a little bloated, I mean, and, you know, it literally had, like, it has skits on it, um, you know, uh, which are kind of funny um, the first time you hear them, but you know, uh, Kanye didn't really get the the idea of like the skit is is done type of thing. Um, but uh, anyway, regardless, so we're going to move on to talking about our uh, final couple of guilty pleasure records um, and just like have a kind of free flowing discussion around that. Um, so I'll give over to Isaac uh, for his uh, third album that he had. Uh, as yeah, a well, pleasure. this is uh, an album and a band that we've kind of talked about my contrarian love for, you know, in oh, a, a circumspect way before, but I guess now I'm, I'm uh, happy to be able to address this head on. So my third album is 1999's uh, Smash Mouth's Astro Lounge. So I, I was glad because mm. I got to do a, a kind of second, second revisitation on the album uh, when we decided to break this episode up. And it really, I think, helped me zero in on particularly why I've always 
felt that that Smash Mouth is underappreciated or that I'm able to kind of appreciate them for what they are. And my cat, if you go back and listen to Astro Lounge, which, you know, you, you probably won't, but you might just off curiosity based on my breakdown of it. Uh, it it kind of it synthesizes into a just completely like homogenous de can you know despecialified pop form all the like weird california like you know not so much slacker not so much like back you know actual auteur pop stuff but the kind of like second wave sublime core that was like i'm told very regionally popular uh, but, you know, it has kind of fallen out of uh, critical favor now and seen as the the kind of, like, good vibes counterpart to what was going on in the rock world with, like, post-grunge and rap metal and stuff. And I think that, you know, Smash Mouth is a band very easy to clown on because of, you know, pretty much, you know, their, you know, their discography, um, their attachment to the movie Shrek. Uh, they're just, you know, complete embodiment of most things that people would consider to be like culturally gross about the late 90s but i will say having listened to astro lounge uh the songs are kind of there uh, i think that what holds them back and and why i had maybe an attachment towards it that i was young that that i still have some you know bone to pick about it was that uh you know that even though the like the instrumental choices themselves and the kind of are are generally pretty tasteless and the kind of lyrical motifs that are being dragged out are largely kind of skin deep there's something that they hit on which is like a more kind of like melon uh poppy melancholic a uh, little bit cleaned up version of like uh, what i was saying that kind of like things that sublime or the you know a kind of like poppier in their poppier moments red hot chili peppers were doing but kind of sanitized and while people might be like wow you know that's sanitizing something that's already kind of a fuck around brain dead thing maybe but i think that 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 that's counterbalanced by the weirdly surprising strain of of, of melancholy and like yeah no just a, a certain like range i would say underappreciated range of emotion and kind of fascination with like a certain you know and I really, I really, like, I don't know what's going on in the Smash Up people's inner lives. I'm not trying to, like, label them as anything, but the kind of, like, smart, dumb, you know, like, stoner thoughtfulness that I think that some people found, you know, kind of, uh, you know, inescapably corny, but maybe in this, as I've, I've grown older, it went from, like, endearingly wacky as a kid to, like, kind of charming in its own way. And I would I would say that you know if if it's the the kind of palette and the aesthetic that is just insurmountable, which I very much get, then I would at least recommend you go on the internet and you check out the split covers EP between that Car Seat Headrest and Smash Mouth collaborated on, because I think that uh, when you hear the the Car Seat Headrest covers of Smash Mouth, you'll be like, what? This is the band that made All Star. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that what? And then you'll realize that these songs were on the same album. And then you will, uh, hopefully, you know, without having to subject yourself to the broader product, realize uh, a truth that I've been preaching for years, that Smash Mouth Astro Lounge 
is has a little bit more going on than people give it credit for. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, you make a spirited defense of the record, and it's interesting that you mentioned that Corsi Headrest Split EP because I, I have listened to that um, actually pretty recently, and it did really reveal like the extent to which like. Uh, you know, the songs underlying it, once you get over, like, oh, this is Smash Mouth, like, the joke, Smash Mouth, uh, you know, the, the purveyor of various internet memes, uh, it, it really did reveal, like, there is craftsmanship there, there is solid songwriting there, even if it is buried under, um, on the records themselves, it is buried under a fair bit of, like, that late 90s kind of glossy, um, hermetically sealed type of production, like, this was... A late CD era, but like that whole idea of everything is very um, sanitized and very clean. It doesn't really feel like there's a lot of organic interplay between the instruments. And I think like when you make the comparison between them and a group like Sublime, I actually do think like you are on to something with that. Like there was that kind of like countervailing force within 90s Indian alt rock of like you had the kind of morose. Uh, trend like we talked about last time with Accounting Crows, uh, you you had this kind of morose grunge and then later post-grunge type of sound. But then you also had bands like, uh, you know, Operation Ivy, um, Green Day to a certain extent, Blink-182 definitely, that kind of, and also Sublime, that got kind of lumped in as, you know, part of that alt-wave, but were much more playful, were much more kind of good vibes, uh, and even if there was, like, some angst and ennui kind of underlying it, it was more that kind of, as you said, kind of, like, bored, stoner, philosophizing type of thing, um, and I think that Smash Mouth actually did, uh, bring something to the table as far as, like, making that even more poppy and more accessible, um, and do I think, like, that that's unfortunately kind of rendered them a bit of a relic of that late 90s period? Yeah, because this is really the period where you start to get, like, the really bubblegummy teen pop coming in as well, you know, your Britney Spears, your Backstreet Boys, etc., and Smash Mouth you could almost view as kind of a middle point between, like, the alt generation and the kind of late 90s teen pop, even though I'm sure that they, you know, probably wouldn't want to be seen that way, um, it did feel like that's, like, at the time, the bridge that they were uh, kind of crossing, they were really building that bridge between the two worlds, and, you know, that's maybe not the most reputable legacy, but it is nevertheless a legacy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think this does fall into the category as well of, uh, in terms of um, talking about County Crows uh, earlier, of where, you know, there is there are albums, because this is the one with uh, Walking on the Sun uh, on it, I believe, and... You know, it definitely... Uh, oh, no, is it not? That's actually their debut. Okay, okay. So this is the one with All-Star on it. Yes, okay, okay, yeah. okay. Excuse me, excuse me. So, I mean, but in both cases, I mean, uh, you know, there, were all, there was one, like, uh, Smash Mouth is kind of that rare example of, like, a true two-hit wonder in that they had two distinct albums which each had, like, one big inescapable hit, but they kind of read as almost a one-hit wonder or a joke in retrospect. Um, but nevertheless, you know, uh, similar to Mr. Jones with uh, Counting Crows, you had this one kind of inescapable track off the record, but the rest of the record is actually a bit richer, a bit deeper. Um, you know, maybe in the case of Smash Mouth, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, a great deal of depth, but it does mean some more depth. And I definitely think, you know, it's interesting. Sublime 
kind of in retrospect ended up being assessed as like maybe more artistically sound if you want to put it that way than they were at the time um perhaps due to the fact that like their lead singer you know tragically uh, passed away um, right after their their third album came out so it kind of got that retrospective um level of of uh level of artistic respect that they really didn't get when they were around so it almost kind of causes you to wonder if the context were different um would we be viewing smash mouth as such a such a joke now um but definitely i think you know as i did re-listen to this record um a lot of it did just kind of go by me um but it's not unpleasant to listen to and it's not um you know actively i mean definitely okay you've heard all star like a million times you could almost skip it but it's not there's nothing um actively wrong with the record in a lot of ways and you know if you want to kind of dive back into that late 90s sort of glossiness it definitely will hit you with that um do i think it's necessarily a great record no but i also do kind of respect where you're coming from in terms of like there are there is at least something more going on here that is uh, a little bit below the surface for sure yeah i mean it's definitely i would i would place it as as a as you know lesser than probably any other record that we're talking about in this list but it's always I've, i think it's just you know the kinds of records that you you know attach to when you're eight nine ten eleven before you're really kind of building out a, a, a distinctly motivated musical taste and it's just kind of glomming on to the cds that like catch your ear mm. it, it's it can give you kind of like micro perspectives and nuclear takes that you know maybe are to a certain extent based on you know just the, what what you what you kind of experience in a more impressionable state but you know that that can maybe give you an attachment that lets you see certain positive aspects that that uh you know maybe disregarded by the broader culture mm-hmm. and i mean i think that really does kind of play into your perspective on it really does kind of play into this idea of like you know often when you get older and you know maybe when, once you're a teenager and, you, and if you're somebody who really like starts seriously getting into music you really start to view things through particular lenses or frames um and you know sometimes when you when you're younger maybe that's like oh what's cool or what fits in with what i like because of the image i'm putting out there or whatever um and you know hopefully as you get older you can kind of broaden your taste and perspective and not be so narrow but um i do think it's always kind of interesting to go back to revisit those albums that uh you know you liked before you even had that level of consciousness of like what's cool rather it was just like okay what what sounds good what's on the radio like you know that i'm hearing or what's kind of omnipresent that i like um and you know for me uh this isn't just kind of a digression like the thing is like my family only really listened to like country music um so i have a kind of affection for a lot of like late 90s kind of country that um in retrospect has kind of been seen as like very overly glossy like think you your shania twain's your garth brooks uh, that type of stuff uh, because that was on the radio and i can kind of even when i go back even though i think like yeah this is overproduced in certain ways or maybe yeah this is pretty glossy and pretty uh, commercial i can still see like there's craft to it there's um uh, there's some sort of authenticity there as well in terms of the emotion of the songs. And I think 
you know, sometimes uh, without when you view something through fresh eyes or without any kind of context, really, um, that those albums can really, or those songs even, can make a kind of impression on you that allows you to kind of see them through a, a different lens that maybe a, a more critical eye would uh, would have it done. So I think that's that's kind of a case study for for that. Okay, so. Uh, my uh, next album is one which I, I suppose falls into a similar category of it was kind of seen as emblematic of a particular moment within, uh, I'm going to say pop music, because definitely I would say this is a pop record in a certain way, um, and it kind of got retroactively seen as like a maybe a bad example or maybe things that were wrong with that period of time. But um, I think it actually holds up pretty well. And it's uh, Fall Out Boy's major label debut from 2005 from Under the Cork Tree. Um, so, you know, you have to kind of think back to this time. Um, the, the wave of emo is really coming up and cresting and coming much more into the mainstream. You have bands like My Chemical Romance, uh, Panic at the Disco, uh, Fall, you know, Fall Out Boy themselves. Um, and then you have some kind of lower level people. You know, there's Screamo obviously going on, but there's also uh, people like Bright Eyes who sometimes get categorized as an emo group. Um, all these groups going on. And Fall Out Boy were kind of the group out of those that didn't really have much of a gimmick or a spin to them. Like, they were playing pretty straight ahead, you know, pop punk, uh, you know, Blink-182 or, or Green Day style, um, you know, early Green Day style with, you know, more of an emo edge to the to the lyrics in terms of what they were talking about. But, like, unlike uh, My Chemical Romance, for instance, they were, like, theatrical and dark, um, unlike uh, maybe Coheed uh, Coheed and Cambria, they weren't like bringing in prog influences, they were pretty straightforward, and their lyrical subject matter wasn't very like highfaluting or, you know, these grand elaborate scenarios, it was kind of just, you know, kind of semi-clever lyrics about like teenage heartbreak and like longing and, uh, you know, embarrassing sort of situations that you get into when you're in high school and that type of thing. And definitely this is, you know, within the tradition of a Green Day Dookie or a, uh, a, a Blink-182 Enema of the State. This is definitely, I would say, a, a juvenile record in a certain way. It definitely pumps a lot of, like, pretty high drama uh, into some pretty, uh, you know, mundane sort of situations. And definitely... You know, there were some uh, big hits off this record. Of course, Sugar were going down. The biggest one was kind of Dance, Dance. And the um, other one, which is actually my favorite, but has an incredibly long uh, title, uh, which is A Little Less 16 Candles, A Little More Touch Me, um, which kind of speaks to, you know, some of why this record maybe gets uh, pretty disrespected in retrospect. Like, there is a kind of too clever for its own good thing going on here in a lot of the songs. Like, the the first song on the record is called, uh, 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 was it? Our lawyer made us change the name of the song so we wouldn't get sued. Um, and there were a lot of like other similarly long and kind of punny song titles. Um, similarly, like a lot of the lyrics are kind of like these kind of dumb turns of phrase that I'm sure the writer thought was clever. Um, also, you know, uh, uh, the lead singer's vocals are kind of acquired taste. He has this kind of pinched, nasally kind of voice, which again is very much within that Green Day 
old Blink-182 tradition, uh, but I know, you know, it does get on some people's nerves. But why do I like this record? Well, I think, you know, for one thing, um, unlike a lot of those other kind of like more glossy sort of records like we talked about, um, definitely this is a pop record and you can definitely see like the seeds of where Fallout Boy would go into the future and definitely where I think they became much more, I, I would not even really call them even a pop punk band, I would call them just a straightforward pop band like a song like they did more recently like Centuries or even on the next record they made they were kind of uh, working with like Timbaland and, and trying to mix it up that way like this is production wise it is fairly slick but it's fairly um, organic in terms of the interplay of the instruments um, these guys really do have a sense of really good rhythm and timing which um, does add something to it in the sense of like these are danceable songs in a certain way they definitely were you know making a, the tracks to get you know the the prom night uh, moving type of thing so you know if that's what you're into uh, definitely uh, you know pick this one up uh, but it, it I think what I respect about it is that it does reflect you know a certain perspective um, of you know teenage life and a certain set of emotions that are kind of um, can feel very like overwhelming when you're feeling them and definitely spoke to a lot of people at the time um, do I think that in retrospect like some of this seems pretty overblown like yeah some of this seems a little bit whiny yeah um, but I also think that there was something to this and I think as a band and as a, a group of musicians like interplaying together I think they are often kind of underrated in the sense of you know they do do some more interesting rhythmic things like uh, Sugar We're Going Down has these kind of interesting rhythmic stop start patterns as I mentioned Dance Dance has kind of an uh, underlying sort of R&B almost um, groove with the bass uh, there are like and definitely the album is a little bit too long. There's a few kind of throwaway tracks on here. Um, but I definitely think that it's one where if you go back to it and you can kind of strip away a lot of the context which it came out in where they were seen as like the most commercial and maybe the least artistically ambitious of those emo bands that were coming out at the time. Um, I think if you can kind of view it removed from that context a little bit, you're going to find a record that has a lot of really strong pop-punk hooks and a lot of really um, strong interplaying between the members of the band. And I think, you know, if in retrospect we view Dookie as a classic and maybe to a lesser degree we view Enema of the State as like a, a pretty solid record, um, I definitely don't think this is as good as Dookie for sure. But I do think like... It deserves to be remembered within a particular context of bringing a pop flavor to the punk, to a, a certain type of like punk adjacent music, um, and it was emblematic of the time in in that respect. So for for those reasons, I would I would recommend that you you take a second look at Fallout Boys from Under the Court Tree. Yeah, the. I guess this is a weird one for me because my, you know, experience, my relationship with that, like, mid-2000s emo pop-punk scene is almost entirely academic. You know, I have, I like a few Blink-182 songs, but really um, not very much, you know, contemporaneously. However, I will say, I've always felt that from that more removed perspective, it always seemed weird that, you know, you have bands like, uh wow wow my chemical romance sorry mcr who have you know who, who have this kind who have really i i think had this you know total reevaluation and like upholding as you know a kind of like culturally important time capsule of of a scene and a time and you know you have 
uh, publications like Pitchfork were just, you have Pitchfork, who would not have given them the time of day in 2005, you know, re-reviewing The Black Parade with uh, an overwhelmingly positive review. So I, I think in cases like that, you know, it, it really does deserve to be asked, like, why not Fallout Boy? And I think you've kind of laid out a good case for why, um, you know, Fallout Boy deserves to be uh, deserves that that at least that level of, of reevaluation. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, one other thing to note uh, in that respect is that you know this. It's like you said, like it's interesting how certain things get reevaluated and certain things don't. And I think maybe that is the next step is is this sort of thing because there is this emo you know revival wave going on that we've talked about. Like there was you know, the Hotelier, um, uh, into it over it. Uh, you know, a bunch of uh, modern baseball, like the, there's all kinds of uh, bands that are kind of coming up, but they kind of draw more from the like mid 90s emo scene, like your American football, your Sunday Day Real Estate. And obviously, I think that's like a richer tradition to draw from. Um, but I do find it interesting the trajectories that where, you know, emo kind of coming in as, as this really big pop thing within the mid 2000s and then like kind of, you know, becoming a cliche and a joke and et cetera, et cetera. Um, really kind of broke off into two very distinct directions. Like the really poppy bands within there kind of just almost became straight up pop bands like Moon 5 or something. Um, you know, like Pan- like Panic at the Disco's most recent stuff is, you know, more or less pop music um, pretty straightforwardly. And again, Fall Out Boy definitely have some songs that I, I wouldn't even call pop punk. I would just call them straight ahead pop as they move forward. Uh, but then you kind of had the more resurgent underground scene and i think um this is kind of an interesting point if you go backwards uh and re- retrospectively this particular album really kind of shows you um both you know where it's coming from in terms of the roots and definitely there is a certain respect that i think follow boy did have for that but i also think that it definitely shows you um where they were going to go later in terms of they had this pop sensibility um, that they were kind of longing to indulge, it seems. And I think this is a good kind of middle point between between those two things. Okay, so your final uh, Guilty Pleasure uh, record. Yeah, well, this is an album that I would say more than any others. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I would find, you know, I think Guilty Pleasure is a uh, probably not the best label for it. But um, the album is uh 1975's uh rock and roll animal and the artist is lou reed and i think rock and roll animal in the the kind of lou reed canon has a very divisive reputation because it's you know very much kind of the anti-lou reed you know spirit of the underground ethos it's him you know taking mostly velvet underground songs only one of one of his own uh, one of his own hits, and e- even though I, I do like Lady Day, it's it's off Berlin, which is definitely one of his most impenetrable and, and kind of not, I think, inaccessible albums. Uh, but he's he's blowing them up as like the kind of arena ready <coughs> glam rock that was you know really gaining momentum in you know through the seventies. He teams up, and I had to double check this just to make sure I wasn't you know kind of writing Mad Libs, but he teams up with this in, with the Alice Cooper band, mm. and you know you're getting just like blown out guitar solos, uh, you know like organs, 
uh, just complete, you know, cheese of the time. And I think for me, I've always just had an appreciation for it. First off, which what I think has been our common refrain through, although this one I don't think takes a lot of convincing. The songs are there. You know, I don't think anyone's denying that, you know, heroin or rock and roll are, are, are bad songs. But, you know, I've being a one of those, you know, kind of like aughts, uh, you know, reactionary classic rock kids, or at least having that phase, I, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain particular aesthetic to like the, the Led Zeppelin or the Who live album that is, you know, kind of blown out, way less tight, way less, you know, obviously the audio quality is way less satisfying, <coughs> especially on earbuds, but there's a certain like energy and kind of like epic mythiness to the kind of like live prog and you know uh kind of post bowie glam that uh i think that you know it doesn't create the definitive version of velvet underground songs but i think it provides a, a necessary and interesting counterpoint especially because if you're you know the kind of uh, you descend to the level of you know, VU super fan that I have, and you kind of rank, you know, the different live bootlegs based on uh, quality and um, and the track listing. What you're really missing, or at least what I find I'm really missing in that, is like a nice, satisfying, you know, post '60s era arena, you know, context for them to really blow up their sound in. And the reality is, the, the you know, the Velvet Underground never got that. Like, if you listen to the recordings from their reunion tour. In my opinion, they're pretty dire. I mean, obviously, you know, they they uh, it was nice for them to, I guess, be able to bury the hatchet and come together uh, after, I think Sterling Morrison had passed away by that point, but uh, I might be wrong. But, uh, you know, that, that it was nice for them, but it's certainly, you know, the in terms of the recorded products of that tour, it didn't really do much. So this is the kind of closest thing we'll get to a well-recorded, uh, you know, if not studio quality, then at least like mastered, mixed and mastered version of an arena-sized Velvet Underground set. Uh, and I think that, you know, in the same way that, you know, remixes uh, to uh, really great material when they totally switch things up can be an essential counterpoint. I, I very much feel that way about Rock and Roll Animal. And I have, you know, it's kind of a weird, I initially started, you know, I was told that, oh, you know, that's a very kind of casual Velvet Underground fan thing to like as you get more accustomed, you know, as you get more acclimated as, you know, the like screeching guitars and like just, you know, completely atonal organ playing becomes like nice and fun to you. Then you'll start to like drift away and see Rock and Roll Animal as this like weird confection that is not like a real, shouldn't be considered a sort of real part of the canon, but... I've never agreed with that take, and I think there's some, like, it has some really kind of visceral rock and roll pleasures, and, you know, it's ultimately taking what I think are, you know, kind of headier, um, more personal, less cringy tracks, and a lot of the stuff, you know, Alice Cooper, sure, easily, but even someone like Led Zeppelin, I think that, you know, when the, the kind of core VU canon hits, uh, tracks so well that even blown up to stadium proportions, they you know, keep a sense of kind of otherness or uh, that kind of like special sense that 
they they weren't playing by the same rules as other rock and pop music. Mm-hmm. I I definitely think rock and roll animal is a very interesting one, and it's almost sort of like a like if you go back and and you read sort of contemporaneous reviews of this, or even some retrospective ones, they kind of almost view this and the other Lou Reed live album, which I believe is just called Lou Reed Live. Um, where he kind of reinterprets some uh, old uh, Velvet Underground songs. They always kind of view them as like this big betrayal and, um, you know, almost it's sort of like a Dylan Goes Electric uh, moment for, for Lou Reed in the sense of like the people who really love that early Velvet Underground stuff because of how um, experimental and interesting and atonal in many cases it was and also how sort of intimate and small-scale and personal the lyrics were. And we've, you know, talked in a previous episode about how much, um, you know, particularly that first Velvet Underground record, Velvet Underground and Nico, um, really is, like, a wonderful, fantastic record that really changed so much in terms of the history of music, even though it didn't... um, you know, really get noticed initially. By the time he releases Rock and Roll Animal, the cult of the Velvets is really starting to grow. Um, you know, this isn't quite uh, punk hasn't quite come in yet, but it's it's definitely the you feel you feel the bubblings of it. Um, Lou Reed is starting to get respected more. He's had a couple of hits, and you know, this is really attempting to, as you said, blow it up to like arena size scale and make Lou Reed competitive with like a Led Zeppelin or an Alice Cooper or um, you know, ACDC even to a certain degree. And like, I can understand why you would view that as a betrayal in, in a certain sense. But the other thing you have to remember is that like, to a certain degree, Lou Reed was always kind of chasing this rock and roll stardom, even though he kind of came at it from an odd angle. Like, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that the last Velvet Underground album, the last proper one, um, you know, is called, is called Loaded. And it's called Loaded because it was meant to be, excuse me, it was meant to be loaded with hits. And it was meant to really reflect the rock and roll, um, eth- that rock and roll sound of the of the early seventies. So Lou Reed always had a love and an appreciation for rock and roll um, that maybe didn't necessarily come out on those early Velvet uh, albums for a variety of reasons. Be, you know, be that John Cale's imports, be that Andy Warhol's imports, be that. Uh, Nico, be that the context in which they were operating in terms of their production budget. So I really feel like, you know, you even though some people would view this as a betrayal, it's kind of, to me, it's a reinterpretation and it's trying to examine these songs from a different angle um, and trying to put them in a different context and really Lou Reed trying to almost like become the rock star that he always wanted to be in a certain way. Now, do I think it works entirely? Um, you know, yes and no. It varies from song to song. Um, I think the treatment of heroin is interesting. They kind of do this elongated treatment. Um, definitely there's some like 70s style showboating in terms of the uh, the guitar solos and things like that. Like definitely you can tell these guys are, are good players, but they can't really resist that urge to like solo and kind of do a bit of guitar wanky type of stuff that was you know pretty common at the time for sure. Um so I don't think it's like a fully successful experiment, but I do think that it's one that kind of, it's it's interesting on a number of levels. It's interesting in terms of that, you know, re-examination level. It's interesting in terms of um, putting these songs in a new context. Um, and it's interesting, you know, just to, to go back and forth between the original recordings and these songs to see how much a song can really be almost mutated by the, the context in which it's put. And, you know, even the emotion of it is really mutated in the context of which it's put. Like heroin, 
um, in this context becomes like almost triumphant in a certain way, even though I don't know if that was necessarily the effect they were going for, but it but it has a much more of a of a freewheeling kind of atmosphere here as opposed to the kind of like insular drip 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 of the original um, one, uh, original recording of heroin. Um, but another another point I would make, maybe against the record, is that it does <sighs> suffer, in my opinion, from the kind of like mid seventies like recording quality of it, like. This is around the time you also get, um, like, I want to say you have, like, Peter Frampton Comes Alive or the Kiss Alive record. Um, And, you know, that was kind of a thing that happened for a lot of bands at the time. It was seen as a way to kind of capture some of the fire and magic of your live show within a record. But unfortunately, in retrospect, I think a lot of the recording quality of um, those albums doesn't necessarily hold up. And I would put Rock and Roll Animal within that same category. It sounds kind of blown out and muddy um to modern ears now as you said maybe that is just because you have to get the right type of sound system hookup to really have this um, have the proper intended effect uh but nevertheless uh but i do think it, it's it's a very interesting record and i think if you're somebody that is getting into Lou Reed, getting into the Melbourne Underground. Um, this is not the first thing I would give you for sure because I think it's really different than a lot of the material that you know made him such a such a classic and towering figure. But I think this is something you can. This is maybe the next step after those those really big uh, those big towering works for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I I guess I'll just finish it off by you know. Uh, maybe recommending uh that if you were you know if you are gonna check it out i think of all the tracks uh it's the the kind of like chugging proto-punk uh so the white light white heat and rock and roll that they they kind of suffer the bet they they kind of take to it the best although the rock and roll does have like a a who style just completely self-indulgent um organ breakdown so it's really again it's one of those cases of like objectively one could argue that it's you know it's not age the best and it's in poor taste but i think that you know they're definitely people definitely have built up a fondness for that kind of like 70s virtuosis wanker virtuosic wankery and i i think that you know it if you know you've already kind of decided that you're going to put up with that or you kind of want to scratch that itch i think that rock and roll animal does really stand out in that canon of like the ones you mentioned but also something like uh who live at leeds or zeppelin's uh, song remains the same where you know they all kind of fall prey to the same um the same pitfall in terms of recording quality in terms of pacing uh in terms of you know, maybe not, you know, stitching together the performances like some, you know, later uh, attempts had done. But uh, it, it does, you know, it, it, it does provide something that you can't really get anywhere else, which is, you know, those bands really operating uh, at the, the height of their powers or in the way that they really, they, they wanted to come across outside of the constraints of the studio. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, too, it's it's like you said, you know, there has been a bit more of a reappreciation of this sort of music 
Um, and even to a certain degree, like, I think what Lou Reed was going for here of, like, trying to put these songs, which are more personal and more insular within this kind of, like, massive, blown-up, widescreen rock canvas. Um, you have, like, bands nowadays, like a Sheer Mag, I think of, that really, um, like, I don't know if they listen to, to, you know, Rock and Roll Animal and they decide, oh, yeah, like, that's what we really want to do. But I definitely think that, like, there is kind of an underrated legacy, like, uh, an interesting legacy that something like this has of, like, oh, like, you can make a really big, blown-up, kind of cheesy rock record, but it can still have personal content to it. It doesn't necessarily need to either, you know, be an ACDC, you know, it's all about drinking and good chimes and chasing girls, or, like, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin, it's about elves and fairies and J.R.R. Tolkien uh, ripoffs. So, you know, there are, I, I think that there is something that this record did that I don't know if, if it was necessarily a legacy that people are self-consciously drawing on, um, but it's definitely had more of an impact than I feel people uh, really, really give it credit for. So for that reason, I would definitely say check it out, even though I think it, it does suffer from, from a certain level of unevenness. Well, that's that's a very that's a very good point. I'm kind of salty. I, I didn't think of it that way, but uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my final record, uh, and I, I can't really think of a way to transition this. It's kind of a bit of a 180. Is um so this is uh, from 2008, so it's my most recent record, and it's one which I feel like this artist has really become you know much more of a, a public lightning rod for for good or for ill. Um, definitely moved way more into becoming a pop star since this record came out. But I think that this particular record um, is kind of interesting, both as a crossroads in her career, but also it's kind of interesting to examine from the like maybe again that underrated legacy that we uh, that we sometimes talk about, uh, like we do with Rock Royal. But anyway, my uh, last guilty pleasure record is a 2008 uh, record by Taylor Swift, Fearless. Um, which you probably remember for having uh, You Belong With Me on it, um, or um, the other big uh, single off of it was 15. Um, So why do I I like this record? So I think the thing you have to kind of remember is a bit hard to do now is that, you know, Taylor Swift started out as a a country artist. Um, You know, I know that's a, you know, it might seem kind of common knowledge, and of course she did, but it really kind of is hard to imagine that now being this kind of artistic niche um, and also the fact that, uh, you know, she was playing to a, a, a different audience at the time and that type of thing. But I think that there is um, definitely on this record, you can see her aiming more for those pop type of hits. But it's an interesting crossroads because you see where uh, the record really is trying to be more personal sort of statements, uh, but within a very sort of like pop country type of glossy context like definitely the production on this album is very glossy um very pop um even though like yes there are you know fiddles and banjos in the background but it's definitely a a glossy pop country record um i wouldn't say it's quite as blown up as like a you know as i previously mentioned a a garth brooks or shania twain it's a little more intimate than that um but certainly uh not gonna you know put this on the the alt country revival scene uh, or wilco or anything like that but I do think that it's it, what's been interesting about this is the fact that like you have had um, artists like uh, Soccer Mommy, like uh, JSOM, like um, even Julian Baker have really kind of said, oh yeah, like I really 
liked Taylor Swift and I really liked what she was doing on those early records and it really spoke to me in a particular situation. And, you know, these are, it is an album of almost kind of like pretty, it's interesting how big this album became because a lot of the, the stories and lyrics on the album are these really kind of pretty small, intimate um, portraits of like living in a small town, trying to get out of it, um, dealing with, you know, typical teenage heartbreak type of concerns, um, dealing with, you know, uh, the relationship with your parents, all that type of stuff. So you can really see why maybe similarly to A Fallout Boy from Under the Court Tree, both this really spoke to a lot of people at the time, but also in retrospect has kind of become to seem a little bit cheesy or a little bit uh, naive or a little bit too uh, blinkered in its worldview. But I do think that it's interesting to view it, you know, compared to something like Soccer Mommy, because, you know, oftentimes we're, nowadays we're praising artists for really being able to, really being willing to be like very self-disclosing and very emotionally intimate and that type of thing. And certainly this Fearless is definitely a glossier record than anything Soccer Mommy or Julie Baker would put out. But it has a certain similar quality in that it is very self-revealing. It is very... Um, you know, trying to tell these stories, be they kind of like light and upbeat or be they kind of like more morose and sad um, that nevertheless speak to like where the artist as herself um, really is at, her, at this moment in her life. Now, do I think this record is perfect? Like by no means. Um, it's too long. Um, it suffers from, you know, a similar problem of that kind of very late CD era of like just cram everything we can onto this album. Like, it's not quite as bad as maybe some others. It's about an hour long and could probably stand to use about 15, lose about 15 minutes. Um, there is, and it definitely suffers from pacing issues in that the, those kind of string of mediocre tracks kind of comes like right in the about two thirds uh, point through the record um, and kind of kills a lot of the momentum. Um, definitely, if I were to, you know, I, this is definitely one where I would, you know, definitely listen to it once all the way through, but I can give you like a edited down, like pure version of Fearless that will really, uh, you know, really speak to you, I suppose. Um, but I also, but I, I do think that it's it's kind of become underrated both in the, in the sense of, you know, um, I think it has this legacy that there are certain artists in the more indie world that are starting to pick up on it now. Um, and they're kind of uh, speaking about this record and her, her first record, which is just self-titled, um, that really spoke to them at the time um, in their particular context. But then also, you know, there hasn't really been a, a reevaluation of this earlier, more ground level, more intimate stuff. Um, that Taylor Swift was putting out before she really became like a massive celebrity, even though now like people uh, and, and definitely musical publications are, you know, writing about the new music she makes uh, pretty consistently. Uh, they are, haven't really gone back and done much of a reevaluation of this early stuff. And I think uh, when you do that, you will find that this is a let, less, a less glossy Taylor Swift and a less kind of, um, I suppose a less self-conscious one, um, which really does put her within a certain realm of those indie artists that I spoke to as well. Um, I spoke about as well. Um, uh, again, is this a perfect record? No. Um, and I definitely think, you know, if you are averse to a certain kind of like teenage perspective on the world, it may drive you nuts. Um, for me, it is one that I definitely go back to the strong tracks on here. Um, occasionally, because I do think that there's craftsmanship here, and there's also um, a sense of uh, emotion that does underlie it. That um, you know, 
even if you can recognize that some of that emotion might be a bit overblown or histrionic, similar to the Fallout Boy record, um, I do think that it was coming from a genuine place, and there's a reason why uh, this connected with uh, a lot, both a lot of people, but then connected um, in an interesting way with some more uh, Indian underground uh, type of artists. Yeah, I, I I will admit my kind of my my memory for you know pre- early period Taylor Swift was a bit fuzzy, so I had to to quickly tab over to the old Wikipedia to check out make sure I, I realize which tracks were, were on Fearless and which tracks were on, is it Speak Speak Now? Is Speak Now is the second one, the uh, third one, yeah. Third one, yeah. Um, so yeah, and looking at the track list for for uh, Fearless, um, yeah, it really sort of, it's one of those cases where, you know, uh, it's so easy to look back, I think especially on kind of Taylor Swift's last album run, uh, that that you know the the music press never never knew and the and the kind of commentariat never knew quite what to do with Taylor Swift that you know she uh, went from this kind of she went from an her she went from an underdog to uh, you know an, an overdog <laughs> someone who or or at least someone who you know like had people maybe feel has been kind of running the same moves for too long without kind of shaking things up or, you know, kind of uh, engaging in, in some, some growth on that level. But, you know, looking back, as I went to look up the track list, I found that uh, Pitchfork, again, not that Pitchfork is the only music site we read, but it's pretty, it's the only music, it might be the, the only music site that people read that still gives scores, so I feel like, you know, <laughs> there's a reason... It's, you know, a lot of what we have to talk about. But going back, uh, I looked and both, uh, so f- both Fearless and Speak Now got good, got like pretty strong 8.1 and 8.2 reviews in the 2019 retrospective series they did on Taylor Swift. And it's interesting to me because I feel like, you know, my kind of own memory of it certainly doesn't line up. I mean, I would say my favorite Taylor Swift, well... I wouldn't say favorite because that that implies a certain level of like comparative emotional attachment. In my mind, the most solid Taylor Swift album is Red, uh, and I, I think that she has a lot of a lot of her kind of early, uh, you know, sort of more straightforward country like pop country crossover songs are very solid at the end of the day. But there's like a weird in that like pop the trajectory of her rise and poptimism were just kind of off synced a little bit that. Uh, you know, there was a, a, to a certain extent, like, uh, the backlash that came around Reputation and Lover was a little bit building in my mind, and I'm kind of going too deep into my own, you know, Taylor Swift account here, that, that 1989 was kind of, was treated as, like, the next evolution of what are ultimately very solid, like, produced within an inch of their life, but, but somewhat tastefully so. Uh, like crossover pop country and then that transition to wider pop didn't quite maybe work as well as a lot of the reaction did at the time even if she maybe nailed the transition to a broader pop sound better than than other people had in the past that you know that there was kind of an inevitable backlash coming because uh that that in reality it isn't just that she's you know kind of like become a bad person or it's reputation or anything but that the the storytelling of her her songs really is not 
you know, what maybe drew people to her, even against their genre inclinations in her earlier run of albums. It's just not there anymore. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that that's a really important point to raise, is that the fact that, uh, like you said, against their genre inclinations, there were people that were drawn to this because of the storytelling. And again, like, um, you can say, oh, like, you know, are these the most important stories to tell in the world? Like, yeah, perhaps not. But I think that they did, that it was connecting people on that deeper emotional level. And I think as she became much more of a straightforward pop artist, um, even though I would, I would probably agree with you if I had to like rate all the Taylor Swift albums, I would probably say the best one is Red, just in terms of like sonic variety and consistency of the songwriting across it. Um, but there, even on that one, you are starting to miss out. Like she is becoming much more of a larger than life figure, and you are kind of getting, uh, you, you are losing a lot of that kind of emotional intimacy that I think people really connected with on those first few records, um, you know, the self-titled uh, Fearless and then Speak Now, which, you know, I think you can really call, like, her country records to the extent that, that uh, that's such a thing, uh, that's such that that label applies. Um, but, yeah, and I do think, you know, she managed that crossover better than a lot of other people did. Um, but I also think, it, again, it, it's interesting to note that, like, almost similar to that discussion of on, you know, the split of emo, like, the the legacy of Taylor Swift, you know, such that we can describe it given that she is, you know, still an active uh, musical artist, is in this weird way bifurcated in the sense of you have, you know, her becoming much more of a mainstream pop star, but then you have this kind of retrospective appreciation of her by, of her early work by these more, um, indie sort of artists who are trying to maybe capture some of that intimacy for, for themselves and you know it's similarly you know these same artists uh, have covered people like the Dixie Chicks and and things like that so it, it's interesting just to see where these and again like this was not to, to be clear like this was not at all an indie record like this was a massive hit record um so millions of copies uh You Belong With Me in particular was like omnipresent at the time um, but nevertheless, you know, it's interesting because when we think about Taylor Swift now, there is kind of this almost dividing line and, uh, people don't really move back across it. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting to go back and really revisit that even though it is quite glossy, it is quite more small scale. Um, and you can see where maybe the echoes of that are, uh, within these, these, uh, artists who are a little bit more hip now. Yeah, well, I definitely think, you know, it, it's just maybe worth uh, going back in in many, you know, many of the albums, although maybe not some of the earlier ones, obviously not the ones that came out decades before we were alive. But to a certain extent, yes, because, you know, these things stick around, uh, that it can be a rewarding experience, especially if, you know, you have too much time on your hands and you're stuck inside to kind of go back and you know, maybe gain some clarity, maybe some new appreciation, maybe some new distance from these, you know, these, these uh, things, whether through omnipresence or through a more kind of like uh, innocent, you know, open uh, intake of, you know, what, what you're consuming, what you're attaching yourself to, that there can be, you know, kind of relationships or memories there that, you know, maybe on the one hand, you can say, oh, well, you know, you don't want to spoil you want to kind of let, you know, in a certain way, it's like when I listen to Smash Mouth, now I'm like, wow, you know, I, I hear a bit of why, you know, I might have liked it at the age of 10. But I also hear now, 
you know like more or less everything that that they are kind of consistent detractors uh, are saying which you know I, I i can hear i do recognize and you know it's the reason that you know they they won't i i'm more likely to go to a pavement or or, or a yola tango over a smash mouth or i'm more likely to you know listen to again the people who've drawn influence from taylor swift and taylor swift it doesn't mean that it's not a kind of rewarding experience to you know be re-engage with things that are sort of bouncing around up there and you maybe have put in a box mm -hmm. even if they were once you know very important uh, or even just kind of important mm -hmm. and i think you know some of these this is obviously retrospective nostalgia or um things hitting you at a particular moment in your life but i also think that it's as you said i think if we can maybe take on anything from looking at albums we consider guilty pleasures, it really is trying to come into things with a, a fresh eyes and maybe a bit less cynical of a perspective or at the very least a perspective that isn't um, necessarily looking for, okay, why was this bad or why is this dated or, or you know, um, why isn't this as good as the other work that this artist has done? Um, and really be able to take things on their own terms to a certain degree. And definitely in, the, in terms of the four that I've talked about, I think you do get a range of like the the reason we would call something a guilty pleasure or the reason we would call something underrated. Um, but I do think that the one commonality that I do see across them is really this idea of trying to look at something in a, in a fresh way and just sort of take it in in a, in a kind of unspoiled way, whether that be because it doesn't, in some people's opinion, stack up to the best work of, of that artist, whether it's because it, uh, whether it's because it, uh, you know, maybe it sounds dated or is emblematic of a particular time that maybe you don't want to go back to for whatever reason. Um, but I do think that if there's nothing else we can convey, it's this idea of trying to take things on their own terms a little bit more. And also to be able to see where certain things that may come off as, you know, terminally unhip or, uh, you know, really um, glossy or really mainstream might in fact uh, have interesting echoes and legacies into music that uh, does get much more critical acclaim and much more... Um, indie type and indie press type of notice um in in the future yeah well i think just sort of like bracketing this whole conversation is you know maybe we could have bracketed this better by talking about it at the beginning but um the the like the aspect of being a fan of a, a band or emotionally engaging with music that you know, I think especially for people who are, like, very immersed in the kind of, like, always accessible, you know, somewhat distorted, uh, on, you know, music community spaces on the internet, you know, things like, uh, you know, maybe you've seen High Fidelity, maybe you haven't, but it's that, that, that you know, sort of, like, classic stereotype of, like, the, the um, you know, over-declarative, always listing very, you know, good or crap record store nerd attitude and i think to a certain extent that you know although poptimism in terms of telling you like oh it's it's you know it's not it's it makes you a bad person or it makes you close-minded to like things definitively less you know that's not true but on the other hand i think that you know 
personally, I can say that I would get a lot less out of music if I didn't lean into the the other half of the experience, which for me is engaging with the kind of not just like the 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 tones put in the MP3 file, but where like the the cumulative product, uh, you know, put out by the artist sits with me, sits with my kind of sense of you know, these artists, their progression. For example, I think that the one that comes to mind, the, the new Strokes album, I think an album that both of us, you know, maybe uh, that would not give as much of a time of day if it was kind of a new band coming out. Because ultimately, you know, there's still, you know, production's a little fuzzy. Some of the songs kind of meld a bit. All that's true, but there's a, like a maturity and an adventurousness and a clarity of purpose from you know, what is, I would venture to say, one of our, you know, what was at one time both one of our favorite, you know, modern rock bands. And I think that, you know, to ignore the extent to which it's, it really can be the, the second uh, less concrete, more personal relationship aspect with an artist and their work than the actual kind of product, um, especially if you're coming at it from a perspective of saying, oh, well, the latter, you know, more kind of objective comparative way is right because that then i'm you know i'm looking for the best music and i'm not just giving a pass to people who i like the work of well i think at a certain point you know that is um it's it, you're only hurting yourself it's 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 just dishonest yeah and i mean i think it, it's like you say i think sometimes um you know definitely i think everybody has artists that they maybe are more willing to give a pass to or they're more willing to check out maybe a mediocre record from um, simply because, oh, it, it is this particular band, right? And I think, uh, you know, that there's different ways of looking at that for sure. Like if you already have a relationship with a, a particular band, um, you know, you are more inclined to look into their work and you are more inclined to take whatever they're going to do next seriously and at least, you know, try to give it more time if it doesn't initially hit you in the right way like i know i'm guilty of that if a, if a if it's a band that i already know and i like their previous work i do give it more listens versus like a new band if it, it doesn't immediately grab me it does take me a little bit more to like okay i should give this a second chance i should give this a third chance so i think you know if there's anything uh you can take from that in terms of like evaluating music it's kind of both to say that on the one hand, that, you know, maybe is something you can look at in terms of the way you listen to music and maybe try to be more open-minded, open-eared, if you want to put it that way in general, but also that there are these kind of idiosyncratic things about the way a particular artist hits you at a particular point in your life, or also just the relationship that you have with that artist and their broader oeuvre or their broader aesthetic mission i'll put it that way that goes beyond maybe necessarily the music itself like maybe you saw a great live performance from them maybe you saw a great recording of a live performance you know all, all that type of thing um which can really elevate um art in in that way yeah oh sorry yeah i mean i don't know i i guess it's just more of a case of Especially, you know, when we're kind of stuck in this situation and, you know, all to a certain degree, uh, you know, although, you know, certain people have more, more, you know, freedom to kind of uh, get some removed from the situation. But, you know, I think 
most people just you know generally speaking we all have sort of more time alone inside than we maybe like certainly maybe more than we know what to do with so it's really in those times i think that you know the the value of developing that emotional relationship to music and artists and feeling like it's you know something more than just a pleasing collection of tones can uh you know the, the value of that has really been thrown into light by the situation mm, so for sure i guess maybe that's the, the the final thought on the subject i want to throw mm, that's very true that's very true Okay, so thank you for uh, listening with us today. Uh, once again, uh, my name is Cody Vance, your host as always. Our email is thefirstcurrent at gmail.com. Our blog is thefirstcurrent.blogspot.com, where we will link to all the albums we talked about today and uh, also in the last week's episode. I thank uh, Isaac uh, very much for coming on with me. And I hope uh, that whenever you're listening to this, you have a pleasant day. Stay safe, stay healthy, um, and we will hopefully be coming to you with more content uh, in the very near future.